The sermon text this morning is from the book of Judges, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9 and verses 16 through 31. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see you where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 16. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. 
Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came up, came down, and took him, and brought him up and buried him between Sorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah his father. And he had judged Israel twenty years. Many of you know the name Paul Harvey. He was a radio broadcaster, uh, really from probably the end of the Second World War to probably in the 70s. And he used to tell these stories, and he would always leave out these significant details that would really be uh, essential to understanding the story. And it was stories that you may know or you may not know, little known things, but he'd leave out the key details. And then he'd always bring them in at the end, and, uh, and he would say something at the end like, now you know uh, the rest of the story. In other words, there's a story that you understand about life. It may be famous, it may not be. But then he'd always bring in these details at the end, which would kind of clear up the picture. And, and now you really understand what's going on. I feel like that's kind of the way it is with Samson here. I think we need to know the rest of the story. So, so last week, uh, if you were here, you would have heard me say that there's really two ways to look at this book of Judges. Um, and the way you look at it is really going to determine how you understand the various verses you read. Uh, the, the one view is kind of a, a negative view. A negative view is that, you know, it sees both the people of Israel and the judges of Israel as kind of going downward in a spiral into a pit. That's the way it would view. So, so, so that, you know, Othniel, the, the first judge, was a was filled with the Spirit and a righteous judge, and the people were pretty good, but then after that it all goes off rails. So you have Ehud was a bit deceitful for hiding the blade, and, and Barak was weak, and he needed the help of Deborah. And, and then you just work your way down, and, and the people and the judges are kind of spiraling downwards. When you get to Samson, he has an interesting life, but it's, but it's a horrible one. I, I mean, it's just... It's mind-bending. And when you hear preachers preach Samson, you know, they say he wasn't respectful to his parents. He, he was a womanizer. You know, he broke his Nazarite vows. He, he slept with a prostitute. You know, he had a, a temper issue. And, and they look at him in these... Now, now, the same preachers, they do remarkable handsprings getting, out of, getting him back into Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. It really takes a lot to get him there, really, to collapse the building and, and almost commit suicide to get him back in there. But, but what I want you to see is that he's seen as, as a very... You know, that, that the people and Samson are going downhill. Now, I don't know why we do this. I, I think in some ways, maybe it makes us feel better about ourselves. Uh, that, that if Samson can be like that and still be used, then maybe there's hope for us. Um, or we use Samson as just a poster boy for don't do this. And, and, and that won't put you in, in chapter 11. I think a lot of times we just don't know that he really was from the Lord. That's what you see in chapter 14.4. It says his parents did not know that it, this was from the Lord. I think we often just look at him in purely humanistic terms, that it wasn't from the Lord. Well, I take the positive view 
of these various judges. And what that means is, I'm looking at, at a positive view, I'm looking at the people are going down and spiraling into a, a moral hole. And we're going to see that in the next two weeks. When we look at 17 to 21, it is a mess, no doubt about it. But the judge isn't even mentioned in this chapter. There's no judge in that mess. So, so a positive view looks at these judges as representatives of God, like light in a dark world. Uh, they're, they're calling for obedience. They're calling for faithfulness. Uh, you find this in um, chapter 2. I read this last week. The Lord raised up the judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. They didn't listen to their judges. That's the people didn't listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which the fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments. They did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. So it implies that the judges were faithful through their lives. And I think this makes more sense of the biblical data. When you look at Samson, you look at this miraculous birth, this announcement of God himself, filled with the Spirit more than any other. He's the climactic judge. He's the twelfth judge. He's the linchpin between Moses and Joshua and the kings that are coming next. 20% of the material is given to him. And get this, in Hebrews 11, I went through it a little bit with you last week. Out of the 20 descriptions of the saints in, Je in Hebrews 11, 15 apply to Samson. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying he's without sin. I'm just saying he's a hero. He's a champion. He was faithful to God in his ministry. So we're going to look at 16. Now Samson's life is told from 13 to 16 in really two episodes. One is at Timnah. We looked at that the past two weeks. This one's in Gaza. This one is in Gaza. And it comes in two pieces. First he enters Gaza, you're going to see in strength. He's going to show strength in Gaza as he rips these bars off of the gates. And then you're going to see him, and he's going to show the faithfulness of God in that strength. But then in the second part, you're going to see weakness of Samson. And in the weakness of Samson, you're going to see the mercy of God. So the first part, just the first three verses, that in strength he'll show the faithfulness, and then the second part, in weakness, he'll show the mercy of God. Look with me back at 1, 2, and 3. So Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush. For him all night at the city gate, they kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the late of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Well, we are right in the middle of it. I mean, right out of the gate, right? I mean, are we to just assume, it, it, you know, it says Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, went into her. The, the assumption is, clearly, He's on a bender, he's out of town, he sees a pretty lady, and he sleeps with her. And then he busts the place up. I, I mean, or, or should we assume a little prostitution, a little vandalism? I, you can see that, right? But, but is there something else going on? You know, it does seem diametrically opposed to what we've seen of him last week. I mean, last week he was called of God, he was filled with the Spirit to tear the line apart, to say, you're not going to do this to Philistines. And then he was used of God in unique ways. I mean, he was terrifying a people with foxes and the jawbone of a donkey. 
And then at the end of his ministry of bringing judgment to these Philistines, we see God bust a rock open and feed him, commend him. And he praises God for the victory. And now he's just gone off rail, and he's just now pursuing women. The starkness between 14 and 15, and then jump right into 16.1. Could there be something else going on? That's what we want to do to the text sometimes. You know, it's leading us along. When you see that kind of contradiction, if you will, you want to stop and say, is there something else going on here? Because the verse itself, in verse 1, when he says, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, he went into it can be translated, literally, Samson went to Gaza, saw a prostitute there, and came to her. Uh, the, the construction can be interpreted various ways. Now, most of the translations you'll read will imply sex. The NIV literally says, and he slept with her. Now, that is possible. It is a possible translation. It's not the only one, though. The majority of phrases, when it says, when it's translated, he came into her, is he comes into the presence, or to enter the presence of another person. And the majority of uses of that phrase don't have any sexual connotation at all. And you see this in chapter 4 of Judges itself, 22. Let me read that to you. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead in the tent peg in his temple. And you say, yeah, Tom, but he went into her tent. But I'm here to say, in Hebrew, there is no tent. It's implied. It literally says in Hebrews, and he went into her. Now, it's clear it's her tent, but I'm just pointing out that these translations, which are helping smooth things out so we understand them, sometimes they may confuse. So when it says Samson came into her, it could simply be that he came to her. Now, of course, that doesn't solve the riddle for you right now because you're thinking, well, what's he doing with a prostitute in the first place? Why'd he even go to her? This is where it gets interesting. I think Samson knows he's a judge, and I think he's taking a page out of Joshua's playbook. Now, you can do this later, but I want you to go back and read Joshua 2 thoroughly. Because what Samson's doing, he's a judge. He's doing what Israel did not do. Israel was to drive out the inhabitants of the land. The Danites, of whom Samson is one, they went north. We're going to meet them next week. But they went north. They did not drive out the Philistines. They didn't drive out the nations. Samson is a judge, and what he's going to do is he's going to play Joshua. So in Joshua 2, you remember the story? Joshua comes into the land. What is the first thing he do? He sends spies. He sends spies into Jericho. Where does he send them? He sends them to a prostitute. And they stay there. They scope out the land, and then their destruction follows. Samson, the writer here, is getting us to look back. The parallels are incredible. You know, Joshua sends the spies in to a prostitute. Samson goes to a prostitute. They, it says, they see her and come into her house. Samson does the same. They lay there all night. Samson does the same. They get up at night. Samson gets up at night. They go to the hill country. Samson goes to the hill country. The parallels are more than half a dozen. I think the writer is trying to say, people, Samson, look at what Samson, he's a judge, judging the Philistines, and he's going to, the, uh, to Gaza to bring a partial judgment. Think about it for a minute. If he was going into a prostitute, then why does he leave and rip the gates off? 
I mean, why not go through the treasury? Or if you want to kill some people, kill some people. He can do that well. Why rip gates off? Well, because the gates are the symbol of the strength of the city. It's a judgment on Gaza. To take the gates away from a city, you are wide open vulnerable to be destroyed. Samson is going after these gates to show that Gaza will be judged. And remember, when he comes back and he destroys the temple and all the Philistines, that's in Gaza. He comes back to Gaza. It's all happening in Gaza. It's not just condemnation among the, to the Philistines. It's an affirmation of God's goodness. You know, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:17. 17. He says, and I will surely bless you, and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. God is showing to us his faithfulness in the midst of Israel's sin. He literally, the promise was, we'll give you the gates of your enemies. So Samson brings the gates to Hebron, where the kings are anointed. He brings gates there. The writer is reminding us God is faithful in the midst of this. Now think about this. There's no more rebuke of Samson. But there is divine favor. The gates, archaeological evidence will show you that these gates and these ancient Near East towns, they could be one to three feet thick. They can be eight to 15 feet tall. They can be covered in bronze. Weigh up to 10,000 pounds. You see, God is with Samson as he takes these gates. He couldn't. It's humanly impossible to pick up gates and carry them. To show that God is faithful. So let me just stop here for a minute. It's in the strength of Samson bringing judgment on Gaza, a partial judgment, that we see God's faithfulness. Listen, as human beings, we are so apt to fake and lie and exaggerate. In one survey done by the University of Massachusetts, in most 10-minute conversations, you will lie once, maybe twice, and you'll be lied to up to 10 times. Uh, depending upon the degree of social interaction you have, you can be lied up to 100 times in a day. We just do it. We shade, we, we move things around, we drop parts of the story. We do it out of self-promotion, we do it out of self-protection, but we're constantly stretching, fading, changing the truth. God doesn't lie. When he says, I'll give you gates, it's amazing how literal he can be. The promises of God for the Christian are to uphold, to strengthen us. Now you may be saying, but I'm not Jewish. He said it to Abraham. But remember, in Galatians chapter 3, we'll be looking at Galatians in the fall. In Galatians 3, it says, those who have faith are sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. So in other words, the promises of God for the Christian are like grappling hooks on a sheer wall that we can hang on to. So many of us, the conversations that I hear, there's concerns, as I mentioned last week, over government, over COVID, over culture, over, over other governmental interferences, pulling out of Afghanistan. The list goes on about what causes us to be concerned. And I'm here to tell you that the promises of God, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll forgive you. I'll redeem you. I'll bring justice. All the promises of God are for us to hang on to. So you have threats and prophecies of what's going to happen in our world over the next year, two years, ten years. And yet you have these eternal promises of God that are meant to be like a buoy supporting you above the whelming flood. So don't 
fail to enjoy the promises of God. So the first thing we see is Samson in strength brings this partial judgment. I think he was just doing out of Joshua too. But go back and look. I'm not trying to play with smoke and mirrors here. But then we see in weakness, we see the mercy of God. Look with me at 4 and 5. This is where we meet Delilah. It says, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now again, it could be assumed the guy just has women problems. He just has women. But he does say he loved her. And in 195 uses of this word in the Old Testament, it never deals with sexual love, loss, infatuational love. It's always a love. He seems to have loved her. We don't get the details that you and I may clamor for to find out what happened, why, who. The Valley of Sirach was right near Timon. It would have been where he was raised. We don't know those things. But obviously the Philistine leaders see that he loves her and they move towards her to seduce him, to betray him, to find out where his great strength is. Now they're going to pay her each, there's five lords of Philistines, they're going to pay him each, pay her each 1,100 pieces of silver. That's 5,500 pieces of silver. An annual wage for a common laborer would have been 30 pieces of silver in a year. It's an astronomical sum. I mean, it's going to give her millions of dollars. And she'll be a national hero. They're going to, she's going to knock out public enemy number one. And, and did you notice, did you notice, they don't know where his strength is. So he's not 6'5", 275 ripped. He's not that way. I, I get my guess, 5'4", 114 with a squeaky voice. I don't know. <laughs> it could be. You have no idea. They don't know where his strength is. They don't know where it lies. They want her to find out. So she begins. Yeah, every, everybody has a weakness, right? Everybody's got an Achilles heel. Superman, kryptonite, makes him vulnerable. Everybody's got a weakness. And so she begins to ply her trade. She begins to ask questions. And they have this little, this little dance, it seems, like fresh bowstrings. They snap. New ropes. They snap. You know, weave your hair, with a, tie it with a pin. That snaps. But then she turns on the heat. She turns in the heat in 1617, when she pressed him hard with the rewards, day after day, and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her, all of his heart, said to her, razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Now, is he just succumbing to feminine pressure? Now, I know just about every man in this room is sympathetic to Samson right now. Did she just wear him down? Why did he tell her? Why? What, what, what? He, he knew she was not for him. I, I don't know what kind of consternation was on his soul if he truly loved her and he began to doubt her faithfulness. Pastor preachers will say he was proud. He was arrogant. He was full of himself. He, he thought the strength was his. I, I don't believe that's the case. I don't think it's supported by the past three chapters. Why would he tell her? I mean, was he stupid? Was he foolish? Did he not know her motives? Let me, let me just submit an idea to you. Could it be that he did it intentionally? Could it be? You know, when it says his soul was vexed, what do you think about when you hear that? Don't you think about Jesus in the garden? His soul was troubled, troubled. I think he knew what he was going to do. I think he knew what 
this last act of his judgeship would be. I think he told her, and I think he knew it would result in his death because his mother had said, you'll be a Nazarite until your death. Cutting of the hair, ending the Nazarite vow, coincide with his death. This would be his last act against the Philistines. You see what happens in 18 to 21 when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in her heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, come again for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came to her and brought the money into their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off seven locks of his head. She began to torment him. And strength left him, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep, and he said, I'll go out at other times and shave myself free. He did not know the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. So she, she cuts off his hair, and she begins to torment him. Now, it says that he awoke, and he didn't realize that his strength had left him. I don't think Samson ever thought the strength of God was in his hair. He knew the strength of God was from God, as we see him about to pray to God for strength to do that final act of judging. I think Samson, when he saw that God had left him, understood that his next act of judgment would not be through his great strength, but would be now through his great weakness. I think that was made clear to him. He's taken down to Gaza, and of course, they do what they do to him. They begin their partying, their festivities, their making merry. They were getting sauced is what they were doing. They bring him in to torment him. I can't imagine what that means. The writer of the book does not tell us how bad it was. But then we see him put his hands on both sides, the pillars, you know, right hand on the pillar, left hand on the pillar. His hands are stretched out. And, and notice, and remember this too, because in the in that ancient world, that would have been the place of judgment for that city. That judgments would take place in that place. And here he is as a judge with his hands spread to the pillars. And then he prays to God and he says, Oh Lord, please remember me and please strengthen only this once, O oh God, that I may avenge the Philistines from my two eyes. And he grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and leaned his weight against them, right hand on the one, left hand on the other, and Samson said, let me die. He bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So we see Samson here appealing to God. Not, he's not saying, God, grow my hair quickly. Get my hair back. The hair growing, what do we do with that? A sign, perhaps, of God's continuing faithfulness to Samson for Samson's sake? But there's no magical powers with the hair. It was never, the hair was always an outward symbol of an inward consecrated life. He is appealing to God for strength. But I want you to see how it takes place. Uh, because I, I think what God is doing is he's using Samson. Because think about it. Why is he asking about the eyes? I mean, I mean if he wants to avenge them upon anything, why isn't his death not the eyesight that, they're, that he's been blinded? Well, you know, you've been through Judges with me. The eyes are throughout the book of Judges. They did evil in the sight of God, it says, but literally it's before the eyes of God. And in chapter 17, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When you go to the book of Kings, every king is measured by did they do evil in the sight of God or before the eyes of God? 
or did they do right before the eyes of God? The eyes are the window of our hearts. It's an expression of our spirituality. The blindness of Samson. I think God is using Samson as a living parable, showing Israel, this is what you are. You're blind in your idolatry. I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, Hosea was told to marry a prostitute as a living example to the unfaithfulness of Israel, but the faithfulness of God. Jeremiah had to wear a yoke for months, showing the enslavement of Israel. So God does, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples as a living parable about love, what love looks like. I think Samson's last role was to be a display. He was identifying with Israel. He was blind as they were blind. He was in the temple of a foreign god. He was enslaved to their god. He both identified with the people and yet he ended up bringing down the roof and judging the very people. It's, I don't know that you can get a better picture of Jesus Christ. Hanging on a cross, bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt in total weakness, both being an identification with us and dying for us, and yet being the one that brings judgment, that brings deliverance for us. It's an incredible picture. So what do we do with this? Again, this isn't, these sermons aren't be like Samson, don't be like Samson. These sermons are about seeing the person of God in the ministry through Samson. Uh, so the first thing you see here is just the blinding nature of sin. You know, we can make sin manageable. There's a title of a book uh, by Jerry Bridges on the manageability of sin, uh, you know, we kind of look at it like, well, I can kind of deal with these sins. But you see the blinding nature of idolatry. And why, why blindness is a metaphor for sin is because we stop seeing God. What we do is we see those things in life that we're trying to find identity and meaning and purpose and value out of. Again, they may be good things. They may be bad things. Uh, but they're things that we begin to pursue, things that we think we need, things that we now begin to leverage our relationships in life to pursue. We're never looking at God. We're looking at those gods that we think will make us happy, satisfied, and fulfilled. And you kind of see it on steroids in the life of a drug addict. A drug addict doesn't start out the way he is. He begins, tries it, enjoys it, wants more of it, begins to pursue it, and now he's using more of his time, more of his money to get the fix, to make him happy and satisfied, but the happiness and satisfaction isn't as high as the last time, so he needs more, and it keeps going round and round, and before you know it, he's beginning to now use all and destroy all relationships to achieve this one sense of satisfaction and joy. It can be alcohol, and you're pursuing it, you're pursuing it, you get less and less joy, and you end up literally serving it with your life so that you will get it. That's a picture of idolatry. Now, many of us, when we struggle with idolatry, it may not be to that degree, but it's the same path. And he's showing us, the book of Judges shows us over and over, we are to be mindful of what we serve, what we love, what we pursue. It may be the affirmation of people. It may be an effective ministry. It may be a perfect marriage. It may be having wonderful children. It may be success in the business world. But you need to be mindful. This is the value of the church in terms of having friends that you can speak with about, what do you see me loving more than I love God? You, we want to repent of this. And not be remorseful. I don't want you leaving here feeling bad about it. 
uh, th that has a very short shelf life of value. Uh, repentance is seeing it in the eyes of God. You see it as God sees it. And you repent, you, you turn away from it, even if you ask people to help you. So, so we want to repent. I'm calling you, both for the non-Christian here, this is how you enter the faith is through repentance. Repentance of, wow, I have made my life all about me. And, and, and I see God, and, and so it's repenting from that and pursuing God. For the Christian, we still struggle with idols. We love things. We love people. We love leisure. We love comfort. We, we make them oftentimes to be a source of happiness. I need these things. Ask yourself, what do I need to be most happy? What do I fear most losing that would cause me the most unhappiness? Ask yourself, the, see what answers come up. So we repent of that. So watch the blinding nature of sin. Watch the blinding nature of sin. And, and then second, see the the graciousness of God, the mercy of God. He's inviting us to him for mercy. You know, if you think about, as you've read through Judges, you see the cycling of sin, don't you? They keep falling into sin. They did what was evil in the sight of God. And God keeps cycling deliverers to them. God continues to show faithfulness to a people who betray and turn aside and forsake him. You even see it in a little bit with Samson and Delilah. But you see it so much more... Samson is a pointer for us, pointing to the mercy of God most generously displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Samson was betrayed by pieces of silver. So was Jesus. He was betrayed by pieces of silver. Jesus, Samson was handed over to foreign or Gentile oppressors. So was Jesus. Samson was not just betrayed, he was mocked. You know, when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the mockery that Samson endured before the Philistines mirrors with the words the mockery that Jesus endured before the cross. It's there for a reason, to let us know, Samson's saying, that's the mercy of God, is in Christ. God invites sinners to himself through his son. God wants to change us. There is no human deliverer, there is no government, there is no new philosophy, there is no new ideology that will deliver us from ourselves. I want you at one point maybe even to say, I am the people of judges. I mean, maybe not in lock, stock, and barrel, not in the exact same measure. I'm just like, I need the Savior. I think God is calling us to not neglect the mercy that he gives to us in the Son. And this is a course for the person who doesn't know Christ. You don't clean up your life and then come. It's in coming that he cleans you. But for the Christian here, we still want to marvel over the incredible mercy of God that has saved us. And we see that in Samson, going back, the final judge to bring deliverance. But I also want you, thirdly, to remember, remember that God saves through weakness, not strength. Samson, his greatest act of deliverance is through his laying down of the Nazarite vow. That's what it says in verse 30. In verse 30, where is it? In verse 30 it says, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Again, we're reminded of Christ in his death. Think about the ministry of Jesus, the power, the miracles, the raising of the dead, the healing of the sick, hearing of the deaf, 
seeing of the blind. And yet the greatest act was in his weakness. That's what we see in Samson. And yet we're trained to askew weakness. You know, I was told more than enough times as a kid, boys, don't cry. Don't be weak. Don't be weak. We're told, hide your weakness. What's the hardest question on an interview? So what are your weaknesses? We can talk all day long about our strengths, but weaknesses, we don't want to get near them. And yet here, Jesus, in weakness, saves. You know, Philippians 2, when it says, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. We see Jesus in weakness, and we don't want weakness. May I encourage us to remember that God uses that very thing that we may run from as a means of saving and, and using us as instruments? I think about some of when Ray was, thankfully, prayed for our seniors. You know, for the older folks, you know, they begin to get weak in their body, fatigued, minds perhaps, they don't have the same acuity, and they begin to think, well, I can't really do what I used to do, and I can't do the things that I'd like to do. Let me tell you, you may be finally busting into some areas of great strength, but it's going to go through weakness. May I encourage you to stay in ministry, to engage those younger, to, to explain and share with them the very grace of God in your life that has carried you all these years to be faithful, and to use it in the lives of those younger. And may I encourage those that are younger, you feel strong, but remember, Paul says that he boasted in the weakness. Why? Because Christ's power rests upon him in his weakness. It takes more faith to serve in weakness. If we move in our areas of strength, we've got, we got plenty of day to feel comfortable. We'll do okay. But to move in our areas of weakness, I think he's calling us to weak. And to, to a church, to us as a body, we need to remember this. We, we need to remember that it's okay to be broken. It's okay to say what's struggling. You know, we don't always have to have the guards up and facades on and hey, best foot forward and all that. It's okay to be weak and to recognize that. And the last thing I would say, I think, I think this book is reminding us, it's creating a longing for Christ. You know, it, the call isn't just repentance and faith, but it's, it's creating a longing for Christ. So let me... My goal, and I think I speak for the elders on this, that the value of this pulpit is not simply in seeing people come from darkness to light. That's huge. A huge role of this pulpit is to create affections in the hearts of his people for the Son. That you'd love Christ more. That he'd be greater in your eyes. Week after week after week. You know, the greatest commandment that Jesus said is to love the Lord your God not to learn theology, not to carry out duty in perfection, to love him. The love that you have for Christ growing year after year after year, that's an indication of spiritual vitality. And that love that you have for him begins to love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It has to translate into your marriages into the way you handle your business with integrity. If you've been in the faith for 30 years and your marriage is still conflicted, there's no love, there's no movement, there's no repentance, there's no striving towards it, you want to go back to the well. He has to be bigger to us. So we're reading this book in staff, as a staff, and it brought up this example that fits perfectly for us today. It's uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, 
Prince Caspian, that book C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan, the lion figure, and, and Lucy had been separated. Here's a little bit of the dialogue of this coming together again. She says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan. She was sobbing. She said, at last, she saw him. It says, the great beast rolled over on his sides that Lucy fell half sitting, half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. He says, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are, she asked. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. That's the way it ought to be for us. Year after year, hearing about the glory of God in the face of Christ, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger to us. That our affections are stimulated, our lives are changed, marriages, friendships restored, reconciled. He must be bigger to us. Samson is here as a pointer. Let him be bigger to you. Let's just take a moment and ask God for grace that he would cause the sun to be larger to us. And that largeness would lead to love and devotion and adoration. And then whatever he brings out of it, may it be to his glory.